It's go time. Welcome everyone to Quick Picks here on Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon and today with a brand new title, Senior Director of Team and Football Analytics is Steve Daniel, who you used to know as the head statistician of the Canadian Football League. Steve, awesome to have you back on the program. Thank you. By another name, as long as I'm still around, I'm, I'm happy with that. We were discussing rules and everything like that the last time you were here, and we were talking about maybe a 32-second clock. There is some traction for it. But I mean, other leagues, like the NBA, has a 24-second clock. How, do, how does that all work when, you, when a league adopts that, and what does that entail? The thing that you want to concern yourself the most is the rhythm of the game. Is there enough time for defense and offense to get organized? And does it mean we don't stand around a lot? And the attractiveness of our product is really important to us. And that's why we underwent this product review. But the rhythm of the game is really important. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was in the NBA, the 24 second clock, or even the pregame countdown clock, how and the things you do on the court or off the court are determined by that clock. And so if you interrupt the pregame clock, for example, players come and go from the locker room at certain times. In game, the 24 second clock, of course, means everything got to shoot by then. But there's another element to it. And that is when you have to get the ball over half court. So you've got to get it over half court by 14 seconds back then. Now I think it's an eight second uh, interval. One game in Vancouver, uh, most fans don't know how you do that. If the team scores and the ball say bounces away, you have to hold the clock. So you keep your finger on the, the switch, hold it at 24 and let it go when the ball's inbounded. But if you don't do that, the ball bounces away and finally you get it and you bring it in, you lose time. So one game, the Grizzlies were playing, I think it was Seattle, and we were up by about 15. And our shot clock operator, who worked for me, therefore it's my fault, didn't put his finger on the button. He let he didn't do that. So the shot clock is counting down while our guy's trying to get the ball in bounds. So by the time he gets it in bounds, it's now like 18 on the clock. Five seconds goes by. The whistle blows. We lose the ball for not getting it over when actually that's not, it wasn't the case. And we couldn't, of course, couldn't explain it. And we were ahead by 15 and we lost the game by one point. So you can imagine how happy <laughs> our management was with, with the shock clock operator. And of course, with me, they wanted to fire him. and I wouldn't. And it was just, it wound up being okay after, but we were not happy for 24 hours with the, with Steve. And uh, it was a tough one. So the, the rhythm of the clock in football, we want our games to be short. We want our games to flow freely with less timeouts and less wasted time. So that's another part of that whole equation that our product review at the CFL, that's what we're looking at. Now, this is an ongoing review or have you sort of satiated it a little bit? In the past, I presented analytics that say, okay, here is our game in its components. This is how we're doing. If you look at what I call a quality index, it varies. It was really down in 2014 when the game was very defensive. Then it came up again. Now it's on the way down a little bit. But I think we're addressing that that slow decline. 
part of the decline is it's tough to get players. Not as many people play football now. The NFL draft pool, for example, is nowhere near the size that it once was. It's about, it's less than half. So our access to players can be affected. But our management, there are a lot of wise people in our group. I really mean that. My boss, Greg Dick and, and, and Randy are always pushing, especially in the analytics, for information about how we um, can measure ourselves and, that, and, and how we measure the quality of our product. And I, I love that part of our work. Well, I imagine it's, it's a treat to actually explore the question, although I imagine there are some rumblings in the outside world, especially when the idea of four downs comes up. That, that was frightening because for me, Don, you're a lot like me. You love the traditions of our game. You love our past. And our past is really important to me. With It's like the hat you're wearing or the things that are running through my head right now about our game. Those traditions may, may not mean much to certain groups of people, and that's fine. They love different things about our game. But I love its roots. And I love the fact that we're a three-down different form of football that's older than the other one. I like that. that. To me, that means something. And I think a lot of our fans like that too. So I'm no four down guy. I can tell you that. Moving the hash marks in, that does change the way offenses attack the field. Now, there's two wide sides now of the field. There's a lot more room to have to cover on defense. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I was really in favor of us doing that. Uh, we tested a lot of rules we tested, you know, the place for the kickoff. So they'll would come to me and say, what happens if we take the kickoff from the 35 and move it back to the 30 or the 25 or somewhere else? And what would be the outcome? What would be the projection for our scoring total if we did that? So if you're going to give a team an extra 10 yards of field position after a kickoff, that's going to increase scoring. But here's the kind of counter question. What happens if they go to an out? And then they kick. The other team, by definition, would be 10 yards deeper. So there's some give and take to it. We tested this probably for four or five months. And uh, Darren Hackwood's our associate VP of officiating. And we, we work very closely together on that, along with a lot of other people. And it's fascinating to produce the analytics that uh, might give us an idea of what will happen. Is that going to be a significant change? And the one thing I'm getting at is our missed field goal opportunities for returns going to be cut down because guys are going to take the knee because I can get out to the 40. We thought that would happen last year. And one trend that's happening that kind of is hidden in the data is that I think about three quarters of the field goal misses in 2021, maybe as much as 80% were returned no matter where they were. Whereas just two, three seasons ago, less than half the yard line wasn't changing. They just wanted to run them out. So we don't think that that'll be very much. Uh, we don't see much difference there. What we do see is from the 40, it's almost like less one less first down, one fewer first down to get into field goal position. For us, that's a positive. Those are, again, those are the things you're testing analytically. And, uh, you know, you want to tinker with the game, but not too much. Our coaches are, are fairly conservative. And I love listening to their discussion in the, in the rules committee. I said sit behind them and listen closely. I imagine they have a lot of ideas <laughs> that would maybe be contrarian to what some people would like. Oh, well, a long time ago, I was at BC Hydro and I was at a, 
a long-term hydro guy. And this new guy came in, these two new guys, and they were marketing types. And I knew nothing about marketing, less than nothing. They had all the right things to say. We we're talking about doing something that really interested our customers or the chairman or somebody. And so this guy was funny. And he says, Steve, whatever interests my boss fascinates the heck out of me. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. And now that's right. You know, if our fans are interested in it, then we should we should test it. I guess part of the job of of analytics and and all the statistics that you roll through is to steal a phrase from somewhere else is to speak truth to power. In other words, you have the numbers, you provide them so that people can make informed decisions. That's what I do for a living. And someone asked me the other day, analytics tells you what's happened, right? I said, no, it never does that. It doesn't tell you what happened. What I want to know is why it happened and go deeper than just saying, okay, well, last year we had 13% of our drives result in touchdowns. We want to see that higher back up to where it was a couple of years ago. But why is that happening? If you can get at that, then you can really do something. And I think that's my job is, and, and working with my colleague, Jeff Creever, we, we try to produce stats systems like the new one we're building, which we can talk about too, which gives you these analytics automatically. They become data points and that, that matters. It makes it a lot easier to do. Part of your job too, in terms of analytics, is the history in the CFL, in terms of things like continuity, teams have come and gone, teams have moved around. How important, difficult is it to keep up the storyline on these franchises? It's the, it's the part of the job that I love the most, honestly. Tracing what, what you might call a connection to the past. Um, it's like the, the Rough Riders, Regina and Saskatchewan, and tracing them back to what, 1910. Uh, looking at the 30s where Someone will say, well, the game was professionalized. We decided to do this in 1936. No, that's not the right answer. The right answer is it happened over a period of about 15 years. To understand that, you have to know how the, how the teams dealt with their players, what that relationship was like, and then the relationship of a team to a city. Like Montreal, um, there's this really odd connection. At school at UBC, sort of my backup research is ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt's got this period called the intermediate period. And the phrase off the wall that's printed in hieroglyphs says 70 kings in 70 days. In other words, a ton of change all at once instead of one particular dynasty for a very long time. With us, that was the case in Montreal in the 30s and 40s. They had six different ownerships in eight years, five different nicknames, turmoil all over the place, and then the Alouettes came along. and then. Our league really settled down in 1945-46. Post-war, that was a huge success story in our history. And for me to capture that properly is, I think, what you're getting at. And that is what I really like. Like Calgary, Stampeders, they were formed in 1945. The Bombers came out of the war, reassembled themselves from the service teams. The Riders did too. And then you get Montreal. All of a sudden, you have a nine-team proto-Canadian football league. And then the rules started to come together. And then by 1958, it's actually called the CFL. But those processes take a long time. And our history needs to make sure that we get that right. There are sinews that connect all the dots, as it were. Nothing in history, and especially with professional sport, is cut and dried. There's no simple demarcation line that you say, okay, there, 
that's the moment when this happened because there are connections to moments and events before that. History's really messy, particularly ours. You and I were talking earlier about um, how clubs want to project themselves. What part of the, like Ottawa is a really good example of that. You rightly pointed out that they've had the Red Blacks and the Renegades and the Rough Riders. Well, they, were, they had the Senators as well. And then they changed the name and back and forth. And you read the paper in the 30s and they're called this. And then you read another one, it's called that. What's really odd is if you look at the statistics for a game in the 1936 season, one paper will have one set, another newspaper will have another, depending upon which paper covered the game. We standardized all that, I think, in the West in 1950 with a guy from Regina named Bill Horlack, to whom I owe an immense amount of thanks for the stability he brought. And those names, they tend to go away. But I put his name in the CFL guide every single season because of that. Without that, we don't have that history captured. And that's important to me. Well, there are always people that are momentous, that provide a legacy that need never be ignored. And what you're doing with Bill is obviously an attestation to that. There's somebody upon his shoulders, the league and your department could move forward. We move forward on his shoulders. Gord Walker in the East was that. But you can go one level lower than that. I don't mean lower in terms of their importance, really. Lower in terms of where they were located in collecting and recording our data. If you look at Steve Sturr in Saskatchewan, or Daryl Slade in Calgary, um, those people were lost without them. So I have all this data, and yes, I can make flashy databases and produce analytics, but you need the people that make those decisions. We make those decisions now live on game night in the moment. In the past, that decision would take you a couple of weeks. Okay, game day auditing. I guess that's what you're driving at here. How is that going to be different this year? And how are you guys even doing it in the first place? It's a story that goes back to 2007. I was going to the schools, working for the Lions, and just really enjoying that part of it. But I got a call from the Canadian Football League that said, Steve, we understand that you have some background and we need to hire a new CFL statistician. Would you join us? I looked at my wife and she says, go for it. So I did. And I said, sure. I had to start somewhere. I looked and the data was not good. I'd look at a play and the statistics don't match the play or the stat system wasn't well understood by everyone. So a whole lot of organization had to take place. And the first thing was to pull everyone together to say, look, sorry, guys, we're not going to make nine different decisions around what a sack is. We're going to make one decision and it's going to be this way. Half of them looked at me like, who are you? And I said, well, sorry, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to decide at the league level what constitutes a stats decision. And we still do it today. But the dynamic between the crew and us is to get along, to say, we trust you. And we won't change much. But if we have to, you need to understand that. And, and the game is so fast now that we, uh, we've said to them, look, get the play in and move on. And we'll fix it. Because there are a lot of plays that you well know on the Canadian Football League that are kind of mysterious. How do you score that? So it's like Willie Jefferson. He had a single a couple of years ago, 2019. He recovered a fumble and dribbled the ball into the end zone. And the other team recovered. So he kicked it in the end zone. And he got a single. What's a dribble? Those are things that not all our crews know. 
that dynamic is what auditing is about to make it right. And now with betting on the games and all those things, you got to get the right guy and the right yards and the right time. And I've got another tale about that in a moment, which I can share with you, which is really involved around connecting with the people who work in the stadium to get it right. Please, please share. In British Columbia, I, I work also as the stats crew chief with a gentleman that I can never think enough or owe too much to Doug Page. And the two of us essentially do the game together. We can do the game with two of us. We have done it. You don't want to do that, but we've done it. So anyway, one, one game where there's a new scoreboard operator. Unfortunately, he sits right beside me. So the Lions have a touchdown, kick the conduit, and then they go to kick off. And there was some sort of penalty, I guess. So he moved the kickoff up a little bit to the 50. It's a roughing penalty. And he kicks the kickoff through the end zone. Well, the scoreboard operator is beside me, and he's a young guy. So he puts up a single. I looked up at the scoreboard, and I thought, uh, hello. So I said to him, you, you realize that, that there is no single up late. He's in shock now. He says, no, I thought there was. And I said, take that off as soon as you can. Both benches are looking up towards the press box. About six people come running down. Is the score wrong? And I said, calm down. We'll fix it. He learned a lot in that moment. You need to make sure that the person, the individual running that scoreboard knows the rules. And in that case, he didn't. And uh, that was that was kind of freaky for a moment or two, but we figured it out. So anyway. Even in the Grey Cup, there was a moment where a Hamilton player jumps up, touches the kickoff, and the ball squirts out the back of the end zone. I've never seen a player do that before. They usually muff it or do something and, and carry it out or get tackled in the end zone. But there's a guy jumped up and just barely touches it. Yes. How do you interpret that? That is about the hardest, the most vocal coaches. I'm sure you know who this lot is, his special teams guys. You kick off and the guy touches the ball like that, but it keeps going. So the kickoff team wants the kickoff to be a lot longer because he didn't really have possession. But the rule book says possession is firm possession of the ball between your hands. Well, that's not always the case. Possession is, it touched me, so now it's a loose ball. Do you give the guy a punt return? So the special teams coaches, they want, if they're covering the kick, they want it to be a fumble. If they're not covering the kick, if they're the return team, they don't want it to be a fumble. <laughs> I, said, I said, Jeff Reinbold, who's a very, I, I say his name because he's a good friend. I said, Jeff, you can't have it both ways. And so where you locate a kick and measure the yards and start a return or not is iffy in this sort of just casual touching of the ball. The dynamic of that is tough because there's people involved. Say that was that guy's third fumble of the game. I'll bet you he doesn't play next game. So there is that. Or on that stage in the Grey Cup. Exactly. So these decisions... It's funny, when I first convened the, the stats crews that I was now in charge of, I had this whole agenda, one of which was to introduce myself and say, this is how we're going to work together. And I wanted to talk for about 15 minutes about this new way of going. So I sat down and the guy beside me says, can I, he's from a Western team. And he says, can I start in? And I said, go ahead. And he leaped right into the micro definition of what a pass knockdown was. We hadn't even met yet. That's how invested he was in that particular type of micro decision of what a pass knockdown 
constitutes. Whereas uh, my name's Steve. You know, that's where I was. <laughs> and here's what we're going to do. And so that, that took a while to get going. I'll thank Victor Goslin of Toronto. He was the Argos stats crew guy at the time. He, he goes, shut up and listen. <laughs> and it worked. Walk me through game night. Somebody's at the stadium recording everything. Walk me through how auditing works. Starts at uh, about six o'clock in the morning when the rosters are loaded out of our, like teams have until 24 hours for the game. And those to declare who's their 44 man roster or 45, that gets transferred into our stat system. It's called CFL Connect. And if it's not there, that adds about three hours of manual work if it's not there. So the IT part behind us got to be ready. If it is, and we check in the morning, we look at the rosters and we check them to the um, depth charts. So those depth charts have a real role in all of this. So we check to make sure the players and one particular Western team, I won't name them, but they wear green things. They had their roster. And so you have to compare at game time. They have to give you a list and sign it as to who plays. So it's sorting out who's eligible to play is the first thing we do. And that takes place usually. So I tune in first thing in the morning, then go away, have my day. And then about an hour and a half before the game, I load in the stat system, get ready, look at the lineup and we start checking and we wait until they give us that used to be, they gave it to you an hour before the game. Now they have until half an hour, but the, the pleasant thing is they actually asked me, I said, is it okay if, we let the teams have till half an hour in case there's an injury and warm up. And I said, we're fine. We'll, all we had to do is check the guys. So anyway, we're looking down at the field at BC place and the visiting team, the riders, and it was just totally inadvertent. They had, had made a change, but forgotten to put it somewhere. Riders are normally the most organized team I know. And so I saw the guy, I said, Hey, so I called down to the locker room. I said, if you play that guy, you get, you're going to have forfeit the game or something. I don't know what it is, what'll happen. But I said, you might want to make sure. And sure enough, he wasn't signed for. And it was totally inadvertent. Every team does. It's not one team or another, but that was a case where, so anyway, the first thing is to check all that. So we're set to go. We connect with the stats crews. And then again, I use this word all the time, dynamic. Um, we don't let them handle rosters. We want them to just come in to the game an hour before, and then stay in what we call real time. Play happens, make sure you have that play input properly by the time the next one starts. And in the CFL, it gets kind of crazy with multiple penalties and things. So anyway, we set it up for them and they enter the data. That's the first part. The second part is the play occurs. So my eyes are in three places. Picture this, I watch the play on the screen. I know what should be. I write down what happened. Then I look at the stat system. If all three are all right, X play. That's approval. My eyes are 40 second clock, uh, our time between plays, if you know what I mean. The 25 is just enough for me to get my eyes back up at the beginning of the next play. So I'm still recording stuff while they're in the huddle. That little routine we do about 14,000 times a year because that's how many that's how many plays we have. And that's how at the end of the game, we can release the stats to the public within two minutes 
If you don't do that, then you got to do it on Monday for all the games. And that's what the NFL does. But they do with a lot of people. I don't believe they audit online or they didn't when I was there. They may now, I don't know. But we've been doing this since 2009, the year after I took over. And it's fun because we see the weirdest things. I haven't seen that one before. That kind of thing. You learn the game really fast, John. Oh, bad. How much fun then is it? You've got a Friday night double header and the first game goes long. Not fun. Uh, fortunately, nowadays we're holding that second game a little bit, but put yourself on June 3rd in our preseason games this year, three going on at the same time. Every game, every game's data has meaning, but preseason game data really doesn't mean a heck of a lot. We don't add it up. You want to get plays right. Of course you do. It's not a lasting problem. Just ask the Montreal Alouettes who dress the same number, the same uniform number for two different guys in the same game. That's fun too. So we got to mess with that. But these are all things we can overcome, but it's just to make sure that it's right. And if people are, say, betting over and under on how many rushing yards somebody has, that's great. But we got to make sure that it's right. In 2005, the very first Great Cup I ever worked was 05. And I'm sitting, and I was the press box PA guy. I was behind the stats crew. wasn't part of them, but I would listen to the call and then say that over the PA in Vancouver, in BC Place. There's a completed pass from Calvillo to Dave Stalla. Dave Stalla is like six foot six. The announcer, or the stats crew guy calls completed pass Calvillo to Ben Cahoon, who's not six foot six. They recorded as Cahoon. And I announced Stella because I saw what happened. And the stats crew chief turned around at me and he yelled at me, swore at me, and it wasn't nice. Unfortunately for him, the CFL's, and I can say this because it's 17 years later, the CFL's communication director was sitting beside me. And I looked at her and I said, it, it wasn't Ben Cahoon. We know this. And so Farhan Lalji is a really good friend, comes running down and says, Steve, and I said, I know what you're going to say. I turned to the stats crew and he wouldn't talk to me for all the money in the world. Didn't want to have it. And that's why we can make things better when you have another set of eyes auditing. And so what I did is they offered me the job the next year in Vancouver to be the stats crew chief because of that incident. And then I took over the league the year after that. I was just working for the Lions only in those days. The first thing I did when I got was go in, change that play because it, no one had changed it. And that's just it. You got to make sure. It's like a guy like Dan Rashevitz. I love Dan. Wonderful guy. Love him to death. Mike Miller is the leading special teams tackler in the history of our game. But that's only if you include when we have data for from 1991 on. Dan made a lot more special teams tackles than Mike. I love Mike. He's from New Brunswick, like my, my family is. Dan's your guy. But we don't have the data to say that. That's one of the issues. It's kind of still out there for me. Triple header Saturday. You say you get all the information at six in the morning. It loads in, yeah. Do you have to have everything done prior to the first game? Or how do you, how do you weave that into each game? Oh, that's a great question. And here's how that works. Game one, going on. Game two starts right after, but you get the roster for game two 
about half an hour before it's supposed to start. Well, that means the first game's still going on. So one of us veers off, goes and, and gets the email, takes a picture of the sheet signed off, enters that, because you have to enter the starters. You don't know who the starters are until game time. And then comes back. And then we'll pick up, like Doug Page primarily makes sure the tackles are correct and the penalties are correct. I make the decisions on offense. And then Jeff makes the decisions in other ways. He'll like, he might call the game. Whereas I'll record on the sheets what occurred. And then anything weird falls to me because I have more experience. Like laterals, dribbles, the point. Like, for example, this is a really good one. I'm at the 40. I punt. You catch the ball at your own 30. Flag is thrown for illegal block. And they put the ball at the 21. Do I give you a catch at the 30, a one-yard return, and assess the penalty back to the 21? Catch at the 30, runs one yard. The flag effectively at 31, back to the 21. So we have to sort out why it's at the 21 and not the 20. When clearly the guy was standing on the 30, do we give a one-yard punt return? Coaches hate that. So what we do is we just say he caught it at the 31. That way we don't flood our statistics with a bunch of one for zeros, which the guy never had a legitimate chance to run that punt back. It's not a real return. That is in my head. What they did in 1993, I don't really care. It is what it is. I care that what's there now, I can explain it to Craig Dickinson. Craig is Mr. Special Teams, and he questions everything in the right and most respectful way I've ever seen. Craig is great. So is uh, Bob Dice. Jeff's pretty outspoken. He's in my face. And I can understand that. But at some point, you got to make a choice. Or where did he catch the punt or not? Jeff will say, well, he didn't catch it. He didn't have firm possession. I'm looking at page six of the rule book. And I said, well, Jeff, you can look at page six of the rule book. I would prefer you to refer to page 84, which says any punt that strikes a player, a returner, that player will be charged with a return. And that is considered and deemed to be possession on a punt return because it hit him. Oh, okay. Yeah. You depend heavily on video feeds, right? If you're going to be auditing and stuff like that. If TSN 3 hasn't picked up the game right away and TSN 5 is still showing Ottawa and Toronto and they're in overtime, how do you get that information? The stats crews will record it. We just can't check it until the next day because there used to be two sources of film for a game. TSN's basic broadcast and then there's the video coordinator. Video coordinator has a camera on the stadium roof. I can access that later if I have to. But now we're blessed with this other thing. It's called Sony Psy. And it's a camera that shoots the game independently of TSN. And our, our control center in Toronto, the officiating, yeah. has that. And they said, hey, you guys should use this too. And now we do. And you'd have to have separate feeds too, wouldn't you? Yes. They're separate feeds. We have a subscription to it. It's a little weird, but at least you can see. There's no play-by-play. It gives you something. We never had that until last year. Okay. And that was our first shot at that. So this year we'll have that. And then 
oftentimes in the middle of a game, Jeff and I, or Doug and I will disagree on what, what happened. I got this guy, you got that guy. Or, gee, I think it was the 35, not the 40, where he caught that pass. Oftentimes, crews aren't off by one yard, they're off by five, which is normal. And we correct that. So Jeff will say, well, I'll keep, I'll stay with it. You go look at the replay and then I'll catch up. So I have a a set of these records. I've recorded every play since I started this job. So I got 14 years worth of, of a pile this high for each season, a little package for each game. So to keep that package, the product of having looked at the play and not just a repeat of what the crew did, that's the challenge sometimes. So those overlaps where they don't go to TSN three, that's hard. We got the Sony sign now, so it gives us something. That 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 sort of difficulty is uh, it, it hurt. It, it makes auditing tough at times, but it's very rarely. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Gambling. And one of the things that obviously the CFL is kind of banking on, and that's going to rely heavily on the numbers that come back. Do you guys feel extra pressure or is it because, hey, we've been doing this for so long. This is exactly what we do. You just said it better than I could, Don. I never even noticed. I'm not permitted to be in sports pools or anything like that naturally. And because I was in the NBA for 10 years and wasn't allowed to do it then either. It, it makes no difference to me. And my wife will attest this, and I mean it with all sincerity. I just love scoring football plays and making it correct because of players and their descendants. We'll get grandchildren ask us, hey, my dad played for the Rough Riders in such and such. And I'll say, yeah, he did, or he didn't, or he was there preseason. You've got something to say about them, and it means a lot to them. And I love that. But it goes right down to auditing game that there's three of us, Doug Page, myself, and Jeff Griever, and the three of us, we have a little, little kind of arrangement among ourselves just to make sure that all the pieces of a CFL play, and there are a lot, are, are done in the right way. The, the potential for betting on the results for me is just another level of use of the data. And I like it. Our crew, we don't, never curse to us. What is Genius Sports going to be to you? They came online last year. This is probably the first year you're going to have a real chance to find out what this is going to provide you. Genius uh, has a, a really wonderful history of building analytical systems. They built the NCAA football system. What that does, though, for them is it sets up a real challenge to create that same system for us. But our game is so different. The way that the data is entered and collected is critical. They have a lot of very skillful analytic people. And I work closely with them every month. We meet every two weeks. We meet. And they were really going to push it to do the system and have it ready for now. But that job is is enormous and you want to make sure they get it that we get it right they really know how to connect a stat system to the world the football analytics i'm still waiting to kind of work with them a little bit but i think the thing is we want to plug into the system 
some of the stuff that I do outside the system on my own and build it in there. And then these cameras they have all over the place, that'll really be good too for our fans. So we're a ways away from seeing just how dynamic and changing they can make it, but I'm anxious to find out. So this year will be a test year for us as they build the system. We should be able to test it at some point along the way and uh, we'll see what they produce. I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. It seems like you've got a lot of energy for what's about to be. Well, it's my wife asked me, she says, well, you're happy that the labor dispute got settled? And I said, of course. I said, I build my world around this six months of total immersion every day into either it's game day and you're doing that or it's between games and you're adding it up or reporting it or analyzing it. And uh, I got drive Jeff crazy. We do that. We did the CFL guide together this year and I like to tinker with it. So yeah, it's, it's just such a big part of me and um, led to a really good life, a working life. And you can't get away from it there sometimes. Do you ever feel once the season's over, the Grey Cup is in the books, that you almost come out of like another world <laughs> and you come back into the other part of your life that was there before it all started? All the time. It's so hard to be on such a, a high. That's why I can never, I can almost never sleep after a Lions home game because by the time you know, you're so focused, because you don't get a second look much, the next play is going to start. You're still so wired that at least it's better than when I was in the NBA that level of pressure most fans don't ever understand after 95 CFL games it takes a while in so many ways you are one of the most visible elements of this league other than game play and yet you work almost in the shadows relative to 99% of the patrons of the league it's been that way forever and i love i don't mind it at all there are moments where you want to say okay well i i, I did that or we're all like that, right? And, and yet, I'm okay with that. This product review is a really good example of it. That's the job is to be behind the people who have to make these decisions. And, and I've made some of those myself, but at the Canadian Football League, I'm not in charge of those. Others are, but my job is to advise them. And if that means being in the shadows, then that's where I belong. It's just that the, the satisfaction you derive is by giving information to make the right decision. If that's the outcome, I'm good with that. It doesn't bother me a bit. Steve, as always, thank you so much for being on the uh, podcast. It's always a treat to talk to you, and I hope we can do this again, let's say, after the Great Cup in Regina. Let's do that. Uh, it's a big year for us. The Great Cup's in the right place, and we'll see if uh, we can break something since 2013 and get, uh, get the home team there. <laughs> we shall see. Thank you, as always, Don. Thank you so much, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.